As we um, prepare for these moments, as we read the scripture and get into the message this morning, before we do that, and John mentioned it, but I want us to take a moment this morning to specifically lift up um, a prayer for our, our brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina, and for um, God's presence to continue to sustain them in the face of what we've seen this week uh, that can be described as, as evil, uh, racist, um, heartbreaking. Uh, and in the midst of that, and I don't pretend to be able to answer the the questions that a lot of us have. There's no way to make sense of this. I, but I was thinking, you know, sanctuary. That's, that's the word that we use often for our worship space, our gathering spaces. And, and in Latin, it means a holy place. It also means a place of safety. And that was violated, tragically violated, as these nine and, and others that survived gathered for Bible study. I mean, how many... And we come in, to, we were here all week, and, and when parents dropped off their kids here, uh, our hope, and my hope, when my kids are here, is that this is a safe place to be. This is a, a safe place to be, and, and that was terribly violated. Yet, in the midst of that, what those who gave their lives witnessed and what their families have te- witnessed has been remarkable. Uh, I don't know if you saw some of the reports this week that um, Dylan Roof in his interviews, interrogation, um, has said to the, the investigators, he said he almost backed out of it. And, and that's tragic in itself. But the reason he said is because they were so nice to him. Their last witness, those nine individuals, that pastor and those nine, eight others, was Christian hospitality, of accepting and, and welcoming the stranger even though in this case it had such tragic consequences. And then their families, and I don't know if you've seen this, but over and over as the families have said, we forgive. Now, that's not, he's not accountable, and he doesn't have um, to, to pay the price for his, his actions, but we, we forgive. And um, that has been a powerful witness. And Mother Emmanuel is what they call the church. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's our prayer, that God will sustain them, be with them, especially this morning as they gather for worship. We'd be reminded these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are our family, and we affirm that in baptism. They're part of our family. And so we send our hearts and our prayers to them. And and John mentioned this, and we remember this. The cross is God's answer to violence and hatred. Jesus met it head on and doesn't meet it with violence and hatred, but meets it with love and compassion and grace. That's what we've witnessed this week. And that's our challenge, more than I believe I could find in my heart. And heaven forbid if, if I was where they are. But uh, it's been powerful. So here's what I want to do before we begin this time of, of worship. I just want to take a moment of silence for us to lift our hearts and pray for our brothers and sisters this morning in Charleston. So let's, let's do that. Emmanuel, God with us, 
Lord, that's our prayer today for our brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina, that as you are with us here, you would sustain and strengthen them there as we join our hearts together and, and we lift them in our prayers. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. I don't know an easy way to transition um, from that, but uh, we're going to try to, uh, to kind of get into some um, other things here this morning. And um, if you give me a moment, let me catch up with my let me catch up with myself. Um, we we celebrate um, Father's Day today, and before we get into the scripture, which is in Luke uh, chapter nine, I found some notes this week that uh, th- that I thought would be kind of a neat way to start uh, this sermon this morning. Kind of a neat way to to reflect on on Father's Day or the relationships and those those whom whom we love and who have loved us. And these are notes um, from kids. To their dads, and so I wanted to uh, to share some of these with you. Now I know you can't read this, so I'll I'll read it for you. Some of it I have to translate because of the spelling, uh, but this one says, "Dad it says, Dad, remember." I like the way that starts. Dad, remember, Father and Sunday. Now, so now it's not just Father's Day. Now it's Father and Sunday, Father and Sunday. Um, not Father sleep in his bed day. Understand this day, and he drew a picture of him and his dad. Not this day, and that's a picture of his dad laying in bed. So um, that was good, exactly. Now this is one to both mom and dad. It says, Dear mom and dad, I love you guys because mom is the good cook, and dad, you are very good at waking up. (laughs) You know what? We got to be good at something, right? Dear dad, (laughs) this is this is great. Why do you want to be a vegetarian? That's a good question. Why do you want to be a vegetarian? Did mom make you? If she did, you do not have to listen to her. She is not your boss. (laughs) That's a kid who hadn't learned how marriage works right there. Two more, two more. Dear dad, uh, can I do karate? I promise I won't hurt you. I could fight off robbers, and it's great exercise. Can I do it? Sign to make sure. Love. Thank you. And then here's my favorite. This is my favorite of this last one. It says, Dear Dad, you are as sweet as a pile of dirt. I very appreciate the clothes you give me. I like the way you love me, even when you get mad at me. But I still love you just the way you are. And may we all be as sweet as a pile of dirt. But I, I start with those because um, today is, again, and Mother's Day is like this, many days that we celebrate at their heart, uh, it's about relationships. I mean, that's, that's what we celebrate. That's what we recognize. That's who we reflect on. The, today, specifically, the men, maybe fathers, grandfathers, maybe, maybe other men in our lives that have, have impacted us by their presence uh, and those whom, whom we, we seek to impact. And, and so with relationship being the key, I want to turn to the Scripture this morning, which is Luke chapter 9. And it's, it's the Mount of Transfiguration, which we'll read. And it speaks to the heart of Jesus, which 
was focused on relationship. And, and it speaks to that in a way that may not seem readily obvious to us. But I think if we, as we say, sometimes kind of read between the lines, we get the understanding of, of the depth of who Jesus understood he was, who he was and where he was called. So we, we pick it up in, again, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And that begins with this. It says, after eight, or, I'm sorry, about eight days after Jesus said this. Now, what did he say? He had talked about his death. He'd predicted his death immediately in the section prior to this in Luke chapter 9. Let me say, you can find this in, Luke, in Matthew and Luke and in Mark. But I chose to read from, from Luke's account today. It says, after, about eight days after he had said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Peter said to him, and I want you to hear Peter's words, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then the gospel writer says this, he did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from heaven, or came from the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Friends, sisters, we pray God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we'd be blessed to hear in our hearing, in our opening of our hearts to your word, to your challenge, to your um, direction in our lives. That we'd be open to your Holy Spirit. Bless these moments together, all these moments of worship. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, so as you saw in the pictures as, as John was, was praying, and if you've seen some of the advertising for Vacation Bible School this week. The theme was, uh, was Everest. John mentioned this. It was, and what Everest rep represented in, um, in many different ways. You know, this, this monster mountain, if you will, highest peak above um, sea level. And, um, and it's the popular Vacation Bible School this year. A lot of churches, if you pay attention, you see a lot of churches are doing it. And uh, so throughout the week, as, as the kids were celebrating and having a good time, you know, I, I was thinking about this, this metaphor of, of Everest. And so I went and I started to read a little bit about Everest. And my reading kind of took me to the, some of the uh, expeditions to the top, to the peak of, of Everest, and, and how some of that works if, if you were the kind of person that ever attempted to, to tackle climbing Mount Everest. Now, if you were to, to do that, you, you'd start there in, in Nepal. And, and May is the peak season of, of climbing Everest. That's when uh, it's at its busiest because it's when the weather is most conducive for making it to the summit. And so that's always when it would be teeming. And I imagine probably that carries over into June. So we might still be on the tail end of that season. Side note, probably not this year as they are still recovering from the, the uh, earthquakes 
and the devastation there. And, and let me say on a, on a side note that uh, over here you see this um, shopping cart full of things that the vacation Bible school kids donated, some of the things that they donated for uh, the relief efforts that continue to go on in India uh, in the aftermath of, of the earthquakes, and that was part of their mission outreach this week. But in a, in a normal season, it, this would be kind of that, that busy time of the year. And so if, if we went and said, all right, we're putting together an expedition, we're going to go to Nepal, we're going to climb Everest, uh, you would start the, at, the, at the base camp at the bottom, the bottom, uh, at an elevation of 17,700 feet. Now, I want to put this in perspective for a moment. The highest elevations, the, the peaks, four or five of the peaks in Colorado, are roughly 14,000 feet. And so you're starting 3,000 feet, 3,500 3, higher than Colorado. The highest peak in the United States, Mount McKinley in Alaska, is about 20,000 feet, maybe a little higher um, by a few hundred feet. But, but so you get a perspective. So you're starting at 17,000 feet. And the expedition takes you, you go base camp to base camp. So base camp one, you go from 17,000 feet to about 19,300 feet. From there, you would climb to base camp two, which is roughly about 21,000 feet. Base camp two to three, you go from 21,000 to about 24,000 feet. Base camp three to four, you go 24,000 feet to 26,000 feet. And then from base camp four, your next stop is the peak, which is 29,093 feet. I want you to think about that. Go to the highest peak in Colorado, double it. You're at Everest. And so it is a, um, a, a, an incredible accomplishment for those who, who have done it, um, and it's incredibly dangerous. In 1996, uh, some f- um, um, photographers and, and um, film, filmologers, I don't know, film, film folks, uh, they went and they shot the video of the climb, and they turned in, in IMAX. And maybe some of you saw the IMAX movie years ago that came out, um, Climbing Everest. But 96 was also, on record, the, the deadliest season of climbing. Nine people lost their lives uh, trying to climb Everest, six of them in one expedition. And one of the, the, ones, one of the men who was part of that very um, tragic uh, expedition to the to the summit of Everest, who did survive, came back. His name was John, John Krakauer, and he wrote a book called Into Thin Air, which chronicled that tragedy and, and what had happened. And, and I, I just want to, because as I started to read and, and to kind of wrestle with, with what had happened there to these um, men that had died on Everest. And one of the things that that I didn't know, but some of, some of the folks in the first service who have climbed and done hiking expeditions um, said to me that they had learned, is that, that when you're climbing, especially at high peaks, you have to have a cutoff time. There is a time in which you have set, in which you are either at the summit or you turn and go back. You do not exceed your cutoff time. Somebody said that when they climbed up in Colorado, it was up at 10, down by 2. That was, that was their phrase, up by 10, down by 2. And the expedition leader of, of this tragic um, uh, trip had, had drilled in the, the heads of, of all those who were part of the expedition that 2 p.m. was their cutoff time. On the day when you would get up from base camp 4 at 26,000 feet, they would begin their ascend at midnight. 
And by 2 p.m., they had to be at the peak or on their way down because of the severity of the storms that would often roll in. Well, of those who died, they didn't reach the peak until 4.30. They didn't turn back. They kept going because there is a drive. Now, those who, who do this pay sixty-five dollars to $70,000. And by the very nature, you, you've got to have a, a, a lot of guts to do it. And so they were so close, they couldn't stop. They couldn't heed the warning. And they went and they made it all the way to the top. But in doing so, it cost them their lives because the storm rolled in. And many of those who got to never made it off the mountain. So they gave it all for the experience at the top, but they lost perspective. They absolutely lost perspective. And that is the value of the experience was the fact that they could make it to the bottom and share it. That, that the, the, the value, in fact, Rob um, Hall, who was the expedition leader, had said, he was quoted as saying in, in Krakauer's book, that any, any person with determination, in fact, he said any fool with determination can make it to the top. It's getting back down that is hard. And he's the one that set the 2 o'clock cutoff time. And you know what? He violated his own rule. And he lost his life on Everest. Because the pinnacle, the, the accomplishment became so important that they lost sight of the value of getting back down again. Now I started to think about that story and I started to wrestle with that as a metaphor for I think the struggle that I have in my life sometimes and I think I'm not alone in that we lose sight. We become narrow-minded or narrow thinking, narrow seeing, and we lose the bigger picture of the vision of what God has called us to in our pursuits of whatever our summits are. It may not be climbing Everest, but the things in life that drive us, the things that, that we desire, that we want to achieve, that we want to, to attain, that we want to um, take hold of in our lives, and we lose a perspective that sometimes can emotionally and, and spiritually and maybe even figuratively cost us our very lives. And with that in mind, I, I go back to this story that I read from, from Luke chapter 9 of Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration, coming off um, some teaching and some specific time of preparation with his disciples. He and takes James and Peter and John, and they go up to the mountain to pray. Jesus withdrew to pray a lot. But he goes up to the mountain, and it, the gospel artists tell us that when he did, something amazing happened. He was transfigured. And not only was he transfigured, but he has an encounter. He has an experience with Elijah and Moses. And he hears from the voice of God. So some really powerful things happen at the mountaintop. And he, in meeting with Moses and Elijah, there's, there's a lot of significance there. And I'm not going to get into a lot of depth there. But Moses and Elijah were heroes of the faith. They were leaders of the people. They were pinnacles of, of, um, of obedience and faithfulness to God. And they were also two... Uh, heroes, if you will, that encountered God on a mountain. Moses on Sinai, where he receives the Ten Commandments and hears the, and, and talks to God. Elijah, who goes to the mountain after um, fleeing for his life. And if, if you, you can read the stories in Moses in, in Exodus chapter 19, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, in which God appears to Moses not in an earthquake and, and not in the fire, not in the storm, but in the still small voice. 
So, so they meet, and, and, and Jesus meets with God, and he meets with these, um, these men, these, these examples of faithfulness there on the mountain. And Peter and James and John see this. And it had to be amazing. And it had to be uplifting. And it had to be a spiritual high that probably most of us can't even begin to identify. And that is into the midst of that experience when, when Peter makes the statement I kind of highlighted. He says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, and I'm going to kind of put some words in his mouth. This is awesome. This is unbelievable. I can't believe this is happening. How about I do this? Let's build some tents. One for you one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And that's when it says he didn't know what he was asking. It seems harmless. It seems innocuous. But understand, if we begin to wrestle with what he's saying, what he, Peter wants to do is he wants to locate on that mountaintop. He wants to create a scenario in which they can stay there. Because life is good on the mountain. The view is beautiful. God is here. He wants to stay up there in this special place, in this significant, not really accomplishments, but experience. And he'd really rather not come off the mountain. Because when you come off the mountain, that's where the people are. When they come off the mountain, that's where the crowds are waiting. And that's where life gets messy. Before this happens, the story is told in, in a few verses ahead of this, in Luke chapter 9, it's of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Well, remember what um, kind of leads to Jesus performing this miracle. The people are griping because they're hungry. Come on, Jesus, step up, do something. You know, the people are constantly coming to Jesus with their wants and their needs and their kind of kind of sucking off of his faith and, 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 and miracles and abilities. And so, that was eerie. Um, the door just creaked. So, um, but, but they're so demanding. That's why Jesus over and over has to withdraw the prey. And it had to be exhausting for the disciples. And in fact, the interesting thing is, that the very next verse, after the verses I read, verse 37, it says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Coming off the mountain is where the people and, and the demands and the, the messiness and the grittiness of life are. Peter wants to stay on the mountain. I don't want to go back down there. But what Jesus knew is that the power of what he experienced in that special relationship with God and that understanding of who he was and what his divinity was, the significance of that was lived out, not on the mountain, but in the valley among the people. When he would go from town to town, place to place, to heal, to teach, to restore, to connect, his whole life was about how he understood God's hand upon his life and, and his own divinity in living it out among those he had been called to serve and to save. He wasn't called to stay on the mountain. For him, it was all about getting off the mountain back to the people. Back to those who he had been called and sent to. That's what Peter and James and John didn't quite understand. And for us, I think we sometimes struggle in our walk with God, in our walk of faith, in our journey of life, in that we become so driven by whatever it is we seek after. 
Whatever it is we desire to take hold of, that we forget the value of our lives, the significance of our lives, the impact of our lives is felt in the relationships that we invest ourselves in. The difference that we make in the lives of others. I read those notes because they're from kids who feel enough connection with a father that they can write honest notes to him. But it's about a relationship. I, I scrolled through and read this morning through social media the notes that people were leaving to their fathers to recognize Father's Day. And you know what? I wasn't reading a whole lot about, well, my dad held this position or, or my dad um, got recognized for this accomplishment. What I was reading was, thanks, Dad, for the, the things that we did together. Thanks for being there for me. Thanks for loving me. Thanks for being present in my life. Those are the things that we recognize. That's what Jesus understood. That it was, it was fundamentally about relationships. I, I, I've shared with you before that when I started youth ministry years ago, my, my very first job I took in ministry, and I was petrified out of my mind. And, and the pastor who knelt and prayed with me, uh, George Acevedo, who said to me, they'll forget your lessons. They're going to forget the things you teach them, but they'll always remember the time you spent with them. That's what matters. I, I sat here on Thursday night, I don't know, and, or maybe it was Friday, I don't know, one of the nights, and, and Jimmy Racky, who, who will be here at the next service, who's one of the teachers, Jimmy's here in the middle of the floor, and he, they had the, the little ones. I don't know if they were the preschoolers or, or kindergartners. And I'm not kidding, there was about eight kindergartners just dogpiled on top of Jimmy. You couldn't see Jimmy under the kids. That's that moment. They'll remember that moment. That, that, that'll, that'll resonate because it's an investment in relationship. That's what Jesus gives himself to. Remember what he says when he's asked what the greatest commandment is? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. That matters. But he says, but the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. The love of God that is essential, that fuels us, that must be lived out in the way that you connect and have relationship with others. Peter, James, and John, they want to stay up there because life's better up there. I get it. You get it. But that's not what Jesus was called, and that's not what we're called to. We're called to make a difference, to let those things that we aspire to, our Everests, if you will, if it doesn't begin to have an impact on the people that you love and who love you, then what good is it? Honestly, what's its value? There was a, a book that was written a few years ago which says, How to Measure Your Life. And it was written by uh, Clayton Christensen, who is a professor at Harvard Business School. And it was a book that came out of a speech that he gave to the graduating class in 2010. And in his book, he talks about how to achieve success in the business world. He had, even has a chapter on how to stay out of jail, which I thought was kind of interesting uh, to Harvard business grads. But, um, but in all this professional advice he gives, he says this at one point. He says, but the true metric, the true measure of the value of my life is how I have made a difference in individuals one by one and how they have become better through knowing me. In other words, the, the real value of his life is not in his titles and not in his wealth and not in his uh, achievements in and of themselves, though they are all well and good. That drive and that desire is healthy. But he said the true value is how have I made a difference in the lives of those who I'm called to be in relationship with, those who I connect with. 
And so as I reflected on this scripture, as I reflected on those words and, and the tragic story of those on Everest, I, I came up with this very profound question to ask myself in my own pursuits and my own desires and my own drives. And here's, here's the very, very deep question I've started to ask myself. So what? So what? Let me tell you what I mean. For instance, what if we're talking and I said to you, well, you know what? I spent four hours this week in prayer and Bible study. Here's the question you could ask me. So what? Well, well, that, that allows me to, to be better connected to God and to, to have a better understanding of the Scriptures so I can quote Scriptures more effectively when I'm preaching. And you can say to me, so what? And at some point I better get to this because it allowed me to make a difference. It allowed me to hear from the Holy Spirit that was prompting my heart to give somebody a call who, who was hurting and I was able to be a, an ear for them to talk to. You know what? It challenged me in the reading of the Scripture to recognize that I've been short with, with Tony or with the kids and I haven't been the kind of husband or I haven't been the kind of father to them I need to be and I ask for their forgiveness and I've, I've worked to be better for them. Or it has allowed me to connect in some way. In other words, there better be a so what at the end of our, of our drive, of our accomplishments, of our desires, whatever. There better be a so what that has an impact on somebody. Because the epistles tell us that let's not just love God in what we say. Let's love God in our word, in our actions, in our deeds. How do we love others? So what? I think too often, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm driven to achieve but I forget that God desires in those mountain experiences, whatever they may be for me, that I better remember, I better get off the mountain. There's no value in dying there without connecting with the people that God has called me to serve and to love. We all have those people in our lives. So what? What difference are you making? How is what God has entrusted to you and gifted to you and, and worked in you to, to achieve, how is that making a difference? That's what Jesus knew, that the value of hearing the voice of God and having communion with Elijah and Moses, it invigorated him to continue to be who he was called to be the people, to the people he was called to love and serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, for us. We're called to give too. Our mistake is that we, like James and Peter and John, we hit those pinnacles and we just want to stay there. We want to withdraw. We want to, achieve, we want to bask in our glory. Understandable, but not excusable because that's not where Christ has called us. That's not the way he leads. He came off the mountain, so are we. So maybe you need to ask yourself, so what? Maybe that question needs to resonate in your mind a little bit so that, like me, like Peter, James, and John, you don't make that same mistake on the mountain. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you, you've given us the, the gifts and the drive and, and the desire to achieve. And that's good in the right perspective. Lord, forgive us when that becomes the end-all, be-all. When we get to the peak, the mountain, and we're just content to stay there, withdrawn and away from others. Forgive us for forgetting that the power, the testimony of our lives is the difference that we make in others. That's what we celebrate on Father's Day. That's what we celebrate in you, our Heavenly Father, who gave yourself to us. Help us to live that out in the way of Christ our Lord. For it is in his name we pray.